So it's good to be with you, to worship with you and sing with you. And now we have the great privilege of turning to God's Word. We're going to hear from Psalm 126 this morning. We'll stand in just a minute, but I think it's helpful to have a quick introduction to this particular section of Scripture, Psalm 126. This is in a collection of Psalms, 15 of them, that all have the same title, Song of Ascent. They had a particular purpose for the people of Israel as they traveled to Jerusalem at times of feasts and festivals and sacrifices. These were the psalms that they sang together. In essence, as they were pilgrims to the city of God, this was their playlist. This was their reflection and exercise in remembering what God has done for his people. They were leaving behind their homes, their fields, their places of business. And as they went, they were reminded that everything that they have comes from God, that the Lord is the one who gives and the Lord is the one who protects. And this particular psalm reminds them that the Lord is the one who restores. He restores the fortunes of his people. And you might be asking yourself the question, if these psalms had that particular context for the people of Israel for a specific moment in history, what does it have to do with us? It's important to remember that these aren't just the psalms for Israel. They're psalms for the church. They're psalms for us. And they're psalms for you. And in this psalm, the Lord speaks to us, but he also speaks for us. And he gives us a song to sing, a prayer to speak, to carry us along as we continue in our spiritual pilgrimage. So as we stand now and hear from God's word, Psalm 126, let's remember that this is the Lord's word to us. Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Thus ends the reading of God's perfect word. Please be seated. Everyone loves a comeback story. When someone or a collection of someone's seems as if their cause is utterly ruined. They're absolutely downtrodden, and yet suddenly they grab victory from the jaws of defeat. We love those stories. We have them in history. You can think of someone like Winston Churchill, who was raised into a position of power in Great Britain during a, a deep time of trial and helped them win a great victory and was then chased from office, 
only to be restored again when the country needed him. You think about Harry Truman, President Truman, who went to bed assuming that he'd lost his reelection and woke up in the morning and found that he'd won a great victory. And you have that picture of him with a big smile on his face, holding up a newspaper that says, Dewey defeats Truman. Comeback stories. Of course, we have them in sports. One of the greatest of recent memory, the 2004 American League Championship Series, the Boston Red Sox, who hadn't won a World Series for decades upon decades, playing their greatest rivals with great optimism and losing the first three games, an insurmountable deficit. Game four, the last inning, three outs left, and they're behind by a run, facing one of the greatest pitchers in the history of baseball, and yet they win the game. They win the series, and eventually they win the World Series. You can imagine for someone following that kind of team or the family and friends of someone like Winston Churchill, you can imagine the things that they're thinking at the moment of that great victory. Can this be real? Did this really just happen, or is this all just a dream? Simply seems too good to be true. Psalm 126 begins with that kind of raw emotion, a reversal of fortune so great and so wonderful that those who receive its benefit, they ask, is this just a dream? Can this really be true? Psalm 126 points to a time in the history of the people of God when he poured out his blessings, his restoring grace in such marvelous quantities, the reversal so great that the only natural response is what we read of in verse 2. Fits of laughter and shouts of joy. Reflecting with amazement, wondering how could it be true that the God who created all things loved me in this way. And that particular memory gives the basis for reflecting on biblical truths, what the Lord has done, what the Lord continues to do, and what he will finally and fully do to restore his people. And that memory calls for a response. We see at least three ways that we should respond to God's restoring grace in this particular psalm. First of all, to praise the Lord for past restoration. Secondly, to pray to the Lord for present and ongoing restoration. And then last and finally, to rest in the Lord's promise of future, full, and final restoration. So first of all, this psalm calls us to praise the Lord for past restoration. Look again at verse 1. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream begins with an expression of exuberant joy. Rejoicing in the restoration that only God can give to his people. But it's important for us to remember that when the scriptures speak of restoration, it also points us to a time of great loss. This psalm remembers a time in the history of Israel that was characterized by significant suffering. In fact, the, the whole psalm reminds us of the tension of the Christian life. 
The Christian life is not victory upon victory. It's a life that's filled with tears and toil. Tears and toil in the past, tears and toil in our present, and even tears and toil in our future. In fact, even the laughter of verse 2 suggests a harder time, a time when it seemed as if we might never laugh again. I might never smile again. A time when it seemed as if all was lost. And maybe you even recently can remember a time just like that. Some of you might be experiencing such a time even this morning when it seemed as if all was lost. And what this psalm reminds us of by not ignoring suffering, by acknowledging suffering, this psalm reminds us that our God is the one who cares for those who suffer. He's a God who mourns with those who mourn. He's a God who honors, who hears, who inclines his ear to the lament of his people. He's a God who provides comfort to those who are weak and oppressed. Our God is a God who cares for those who mourn. This memory in verse 1 is rooted in great tragedy. Calvin, in reflecting on this psalm, says with confidence that I don't quite have, that this had to be a psalm written at the time of the Babylonian captivity, that the, the suffering was so great that it must have been a time like that. And of course, it, it could be. It could be reflecting on Babylonian captivity or Egyptian slavery. But really, it's a psalm that speaks to every moment of suffering for the people of God. It reminds us that the Lord is the one who delivers those who are suffering. And it points ultimately to the captivity of the soul, of being enslaved to sin under the sentence of death and finding in God deliverance from the chains of captivity and freedom in Christ. The people of Israel in this, singing this psalm are reminded that God loved us, that God cared for us, that God saved us, and he will do it again. And on this side of the cross, this is a psalm for us that reminds us that God loved us, that God sent his son to die for us, that he saved us and delivered us, and he forgives us in Christ. And it calls then for a response of praise to reflect on the goodness of God that seems at points to be almost too good to believe. And yet it's true. Charles Spurgeon, in writing about the beginning of this psalm, wrote this short poem. When God revealed his gracious name and changed our mournful state, our rapture seemed a pleasing dream. The grace appeared so great. This psalm begins by reminding us of the greatness of God's grace. He is the one who restores his people. And with the reversal of fortune so great that's described in verse 1, it calls then for a response. And we see, first of all, a response from those who have been restored. In verse 2, it says, Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. 
Before, I wasn't sure if I would smile or laugh again, but now I'm overcome with laughter. I almost can't stop laughing, and I have to respond with songs of joy, and I think it even intends shouts of joy, an expression of praise so great that it calls for that kind of response. It's sort of like a hymn that we have in our own hymnal, Hymn 183, where it says, Oh, that I had a thousand voices. To praise my God with thousand tongues, my heart, which in the Lord rejoices, would then proclaim in grateful songs to all, wherever I might be, what great things God has done for me. It's a loud and boisterous response of praise because our God is good and worthy to receive such praise. Martin Luther, in reflecting on this psalm, said this. He said, the gospel is nothing else but laughter and joy. It's kind of classic Martin Luther, a little bit overstated. But it's useful. The gospel provokes laughter and joy. Now listen to what John Calvin wrote about this psalm. If I didn't tell you it was Calvin, you might not actually believe it. But this is what he wrote. He said, The psalmist therefore describes no ordinary rejoicing, but such as so fills their minds as to constrain them to break forth into extravagance of gesture and voice. Seems like Calvin's maybe calling on us to raise our hands and praise to God because he's worthy to receive it. We have reason for laughter. We have reason for joy. We should not be restrained in our rejoicing because our God is that good. Once I was listening to a sermon with my family in the middle of the worship service, something so remarkable was said about the truth of who God is that I had the audacity to respond with a a verbal amen. And my teenage daughter nudged me and told me to be quiet and quit embarrassing our family. But I told her, sometimes God's grace is just that good. We have to respond in praise. There's a response from those who have been restored But notice as well that in verses 2 and 3, there's a response from the nations. Our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The greatness of this restoration provokes a response from the world. The nations, as they're described in verse 2, are the Gentiles, the unbelievers who take notice There are times in the history of Israel where God's kindness is so great that even the nations have to acknowledge it. The Lord has done great things for them. And then notice how this turns into an opportunity for evangelistic witness. The nations say the Lord has done great things for them. The people of God say the Lord has done great things for us. And we are glad. An opportunity to testify to the goodness of the Lord to the watching world. To confess we are glad because our God is good. And it's interesting to consider as well that on this side of the cross, the Gentiles don't have to simply acknowledge the Lord has done great things for them. But they can join the people of God in praising and saying the Lord has done great things for us. In Jesus, that wall of hostility, that wall of division has been torn down so that the Gentiles and the nations can together with the people of God not only say the Lord has done great things for them, but the Lord has done great things 
for us. And we should probably stop and answer at least one question. Has Jesus done that good work in you? Do you say with the Gentiles, the Lord has done great things for them? Or can you say with the people of God, the Lord has done great things for us? The Lord has done great things for me. Friends, don't wait. Turn to Jesus in faith, trusting in him as your crucified and risen Savior, and know that you can say with the people of God, the Lord has done great things for us. So this psalm, first of all, calls us to praise the Lord for past restoration, but then it goes on and becomes a prayer, a prayer to God for present restoration. There's almost an echo happening in verse 4. Beginning of the psalm, it says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. Verse 4, then he, the psalmist cries out, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. The memory becomes a prayer. He doesn't simply rest in the past. There's not a nostalgic looking back to the good old days. But that memory, that praise is a springboard to continue crying out to the unchanging God. Lord, you have restored. Continue to restore me again and again because we're in need of perpetual spiritual restoration. The God who's begun a good work in us must complete that good work in us at the day of Christ's return. The pattern in the psalm is actually quite striking, a, a remembering and then a crying out to God for current, present restoration. And he gives us in that prayer two illustrations of God's restoring grace. They're visceral, they're memorable, they're striking, and they're also complementary. What I mean by that is these two images of God's restoring power show us two different ways that God works to restore his people. We see the first in verse 4. It says, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. The image is of a dry desert in the midst of a summer drought. The channels for water are now dry and hard and cracked ground. And what happens when torrential rain comes? Almost overnight, there's grass and flowers and color and vibrancy and life. The desert becomes a garden. It's an image of the delightful suddenness of God's restoring grace. Gives us words for those times of spiritual thirst. When we feel like we're in a summer drought, when it seems as if God is no longer hearing us and he's no longer speaking to us. When color and life and vibrancy is gone, when we're thirsty and it seems as if everything that offers us drink turns out to be a mirage. And in the midst of those times of drought, the Lord tells us to cry out for his cooling rains, his life-giving streams, and it's a prayer that God loves to answer. Maybe you've experienced that kind of sudden restoring grace when in the midst of spiritual drought, the Lord speaks to you. Maybe in a sermon, in one particular phrase that awakens your soul to his goodness. Maybe 
a song, in one line in that song that awakens your soul to joy in the Lord. Maybe it's a sunrise or a sunset or a steadfast friend who says exactly the right word at exactly the right time. And the Lord awakens you to his goodness. And I think it's especially helpful to remember this image in the midst of the context of this psalm. They're headed to worship in the presence of God. Maybe you've experienced this. I know I have. The Sunday morning when you prepare to go to worship and you think, the Lord is completely silent. Should I even bother to go? And the answer is always yes. You should go and expect the Lord to put a new song in your heart, new words on your lips, to give you the words that you need to respond to his mercy. So we see, first of all, the image of a desert and the suddenness of God's refreshing grace. But the second image is quite different. Verse 5, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. It's the image of a farmer. Farming is a slow and steady, deliberate discipline. It's arduous labor, joys that are hard-won and long-awaited. Farming is an expression of faith. The farmer prepares the ground, he plants the seed, and much of the rest is out of his control. He works, he prays, he waits patiently and expectantly for the harvest. Doesn't that sound like the Christian life? Sowing in tears, hard and painful labor, but labor we must do. The Christian life is paved with hard realism, significant suffering, disappointments, and tears. We struggle and fight against sin, and every time we take a step forward, it seems as if we take two steps back. It's filled with frustration in a world that's broken. And yet it comes with a great promise. Sowing in tears, but you shall reap with joy. It's the faith-filled expectation of harvest. And it's the pattern of the spiritual harvest both in our souls and in the souls of others. And that pattern reminds us of who we are. We're weak and lost and fallen, and we live in a world that's weak and lost and broken. But that pattern's a reminder as well of who God is. He's a powerful, saving, restoring God. And in the midst of the tears and toil of life in a fallen world, this pattern directs our attention to God. And it calls us to pray in faith, to pray and to pray and to pray again for his restoring power today and every day. So this psalm is a call to praise. It's a call to prayer. But the last thing that this psalm calls us to is to rest. 
to rest in the Lord's promise of future full and final restoration. That sowing in tears that this passage describes, if we're honest in the eyes of the world, it's a pretty bad marketing message. Not a lot of people want to sign up for sowing in tears. But it comes with a promise. Those who sow in tears, verse 5, shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Sowing in tears, but joyful reaping. That's the promise of Psalm 126. When we embrace the restoring pattern of Psalm 126, we embrace not only the suffering and the tears, but we embrace the certainty of the promise. And the certainty of the promise is made clear to us in two ways, in particular, in verse 6. First of all, it says, He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy. We're going to put this in a really literal wooden way. It would say something like this. He who surely goes out weeping shall surely come home with shouts of joy. Just as certain as the toil of the Christian life, just as certain is the shouts of joy that we will enjoy with our Savior forever. This psalm is telling us that the Lord has restored, that the Lord continues to restore, and that the Lord will once and finally restore His people. This is something that God says He will surely do. And what do we know about our God? He always keeps His promises. And so He will surely do it. We can believe it to be true. But there's something else, something else that assures us of the certainty of the promise. And it might seem insignificant, but it seems like it's a pretty big deal. Maybe you notice the change that happens in verse 6. The first five verses, every pronoun is plural. We, our, them, us, those. But look what happens in verse 6. He who goes out weeping shall come home with shouts of joy. Why the change? Some suggest that the psalmist is simply making it more personal. He's reminding you that there's a corporate restoration, but there's also an individual promise of restoration. The Lord restores them. The Lord restores you. There's probably something to that. But I would suggest the psalm has something better in mind. A particular he in mind, a greater, a greater and a better harvester in mind. That the pattern of the spiritual harvest in Psalm 126 points to the mold of our harvesting Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember how Jesus describes himself in John chapter 12, verse 23. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And he goes on to tell us that the hour is coming when he would be lifted up and he would draw all people to himself. This is our harvesting Savior. And Jesus willingly and forcibly embraced the harvest pattern described in Psalm 126. And he embraced it because it's his pattern. 
He sowed in tears. In his humiliation, born in human flesh, made under the law, enduring the miseries and humiliations of this life, he bore the wrath of God, the cursed death of the cross, and he was buried and continued under the power of death for a time. He sowed in tears, but he also reaped with shouts of joy in his exaltation. He was raised from the dead on the third day, ascended into heaven, taking his seat at the right hand of God and coming again to judge the world at the last day. And he did all of this for the glory of his Father and for the good of his people. In other words, he did this for you if you trust and rest in him. And because he did this for you, you can read the promise of verse Six in this way, that when he comes home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him, his fruitful harvest of souls with him, if you're in Christ, he's bringing you into the very presence of his Father. This he secured by his death and resurrection, and this he will surely do for all those who trust in him. So that the pattern of the harvest is the pattern of the cross, And by faith in him, he invites you to join him in this pattern of harvest living. And with that in mind, I want to leave you just with two points of application as we close. First of all, friends, if you are trusting in Jesus, if you're joined to Christ by faith, then the certainty of this promise is yours. You can know it without a doubt that if you're in Christ, he will bring you home with him. William Barclay wrote a poem in reflection on this psalm, and it goes like this. He said, So came Messiah, friend of men, a man of sorrows he, to fight with grief and tears and pain that we might conquerors be. Behold, he comes the second time to wipe away our tears and takes us up along with him for everlasting years. Friends, as we travel this trail of tears, looking forward to that day, we can know that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and we with shouts of joy will join the hosts of heaven in the presence of our risen Savior. Trust in him and know this to be true. But secondly, this pattern of the harvest is the pattern that he gives to his church as we pursue the evangelistic task that's given to us. Matthew 9 describes the fields as being ready. John For Jesus tells us that the fields are white and ready to be harvested. And he sends us into those fields with great promises. It's hard labor, but it's labor worth doing. Charles Spurgeon, in reflecting on sowing in tears and the evangelistic harvest, said this. He said, when a man's heart is so stirred that he weeps over the sins of others, he is elect to usefulness, winners of souls, our first weepers for souls. Friends, do you long to see the churches of Jesus full? I hope that's our desire. Then let's go into the fields with tears, knowing that the labor is hard, but rejoicing that we have a Savior who will gather the whole harvest in and even by some miracle of his grace and mercy, use us as instruments to do that very thing. Praise be to our Savior. Let's pray. Lord God, what a glorious privilege we have that you, by the work of your Son and your Spirit in our hearts,
gathers us to Jesus in such a way that we have the privilege of participating in this harvest. Lord, we pray that you would give us confidence in your promises, that we would believe them with full hearts, and that we would then respond to your commandments in obedience, and that we would enter into the harvest fields filled with joy, even in the midst of toils and tears, because we know our Savior is alive, and we know his promises to be true. Lord, give us faith to respond in that way, and we pray this for the sake of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.